Hiberno Goethe, German-Irish Conversations. Join me, St. Pauli fan and former Dusseldorfer Kieran Murray, in conversation with my guests as we explore the connecting moments of German and Irish life. We delve into the many aspects of arts, language and life across cultures. What do musicians, dancers, artists and writers pick up from both cultures? And how are they inspired and enriched by the other? Hiberno Goethe. German-Irish Conversations is for all listeners who like to go and think beyond borders. This podcast is supported by the Goethe Institute Dublin. So, willkommen, Falsche, and welcome to this month's episode. And my guest is one of Europe's foremost historical harpists, Siobhan Armstrong. And Siobhan, um, I will ask you to explain to us historical harpists uh, in a moment. But um, first off, what's your links to Germany? Uh, hi, Kieran. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Um, my links to Germany go back to the late 1980s. Uh, I just finished a musicology degree in Trinity College in Dublin. And so I was ready to kind of spread my wings. And lo and behold, I was offered a job in um, Zindelfingen, which is just outside Stuttgart. One of the, it was then the richest little town in Germany because it was the German headquarters of Hewlett Packard, the, the computer company. And Porsche, we all know Porsche cars very well. And Daimler, well, we drive Mercedes in Ireland as well sometimes. Um, so they had all these incredible companies, very rich town. They just opened a, built a very beautiful music school and they invited me to come and start a harp department. So off I went to Germany with not a word of German, um, but with uh, lots of excitement and, and energy to, to go off on this new adventure. And was there a great demand for learning the harp around Stuttgart in those times? Um, I'm not sure that it was there was such an enormous demand. It was more that it was a very affluent population. Uh, they're very culturally aware. And so they had the money to offer students at that music school all sorts of different things. So in addition to the normal, you know, violins and cellos and pianos and all the rest of it, they had the wherewithal to say, yeah, let's start a harp department. And I think anywhere you offer, you know, music lessons, you'll get a you'll get a take up. Their children are universally you know, talented everywhere. So this was just a lovely opportunity for them um, that they, they saw somebody that they, they liked the look of to start their department and they had the money to, to do it. So off we went. And when you say uh, culturally aware, uh, was it an interesting experience for you to go to a place like Stuttgart from Dublin in the late 80s? It was amazing in many ways. You, you can imagine just the when you leave college and you go to a, a you know, your first job, that's that's an amazing thing but also to leave Ireland and to go to a different language base as well as different countries. So, I mean, you could go to the UK where you're still speaking English, but it's one step further to go to a continental country where you have to speak the language. And of course, the whole the whole mentality, the mindset and the culture is very, very different. So um, it was wonderful for me to, to begin to do concerts in Germany because the audiences were so wonderful. They're so... Um, they're they're really interested. They're really in intent on uh, what they listen to and what they go to. So that was that was amazing for me. How was your German when you got there? Uh, my German was so gut wie nichts. I mean, I had I had really well. Actually, it was very funny because I I'd studied singing um, because I played the piano. I played different kinds of harps and and um, I was a singer. And so the only German I had was from Bach and Handel uh, arias, but mainly from Bach arias. So I remember um, in the, the, the really dark days of my 10-week crash course in Germany, um, of my German course, I remember going into a coffee shop and ordering a Kelch of coffee. 
And I'm sure they're still laughing. And of course, Kelch, it's like going in and ordering a chalice of coffee is what I did. Because I, I thought, well, I kind of know the word for a cup. You know, it had obviously come up in some some Bach um, sacred area somewhere. So that was uh, that was the state of my German. It was sort of bits of Schubert and bits of Bach. And that doesn't really do much good when you're trying to deal with the plumber. So, so, so you were um, good. You were good for funeral masses and that. Kind so of I thing. was probably good for funerals and things like that. <laughs> so the first thing I did was I went to the Institute for Auslandsbeziehungen in Stuttgart and, and did a 10 week crash course and then did, I think, a second one. Um, and that was it. Then I was I had to, that was in uh, September to kind of up to Christmas. And then in January, I had to start my new position at the Musikschule and start teaching. It was a perfect opportunity to learn German because I was teaching children. And they're very unjudgmental. And so if I said something wrong in German at the lesson and they laughed, I'd say, oh, well, wie sagt man das richtig? How do you, how do you say that properly? And so they were teaching me as much German as I was teaching them harp. So it was a really a sort of a Glückssache, you know, it was, it was a wonderful thing. What was it like playing in Stuttgart uh, as opposed to Dublin? Had you played in many places in Dublin before you went? And how, how, how was that? experience that's that's a good question i suppose i hadn't done very many concerts before i left for germany in a way i sort of became an uh, a professional musician after i went there because i'd left college and gone straight to germany so my my beginnings as a professional musician were not in ireland they were in germany so i can't really compare very well audiences before that because i i was 21 when i went there so i wouldn't have had very much experience um before i went so my yeah, my, my development took place after I went there. Went there. I mean, I, I sort of joke that I sort of grew up German, but I, I kind of did because if you go somewhere when you're 21 and you stay for six or seven years, you become a little bit sort of eingedeutscht somewhere. And people still tease me because I'm very kind of uh, punctual and I'm very precise about things and, and super organized. And they go, oh, yeah, sure, you were trained by Germans. And we, you know, we laugh because yeah, somehow yeah. I was. Yeah. I was just trying to get a sense of um, what kind of venues were there uh, to play in. Is there a big concert hall in uh, Stuttgart or is it old medieval churches in Tübingen or what was that like? I suppose it's all of the above. The The thing is that I, when you're a musician, you tend not to just play in the place where you live, but you tend to do concerts all over the place. And Stuttgart was in the it's kind of in the center of the continent. So it was in two hours, you could be anywhere, really, or, in, you know, in five hours, you could be in Paris, you could be in, in any city. Um, and I suppose I started off doing concerts primarily of Irish music. So I would be singing and playing my modern Irish harp. And that would be in everything from cultural centers to, as you say, medieval churches to concert halls. But a lot of historical uh, historic buildings, because, of course, uh, you know, a lot of German towns and cities still have some intact uh, city centre, um, old Altstadt city centres. And um, so it would have been all of those things. And um, what, how did you find uh, Stuttgart as a city uh, uh, moving from Dublin? Was it, was it very different? Um, oh, yeah, it's in, in so many ways. Um, I suppose it's maybe a bit, it's smaller than Dublin, but it's a much more affluent city. So uh, I was moving from Dublin of the 1980s to um, a more affluent place, which had all sorts of things. I mean, it, it, you have to think of Stuttgart is situated in the south of Germany. So the topography is, is quite interesting. It's built on hills. And outside those hills, you have vineyards and beautiful valleys with fruit trees. So it's a fruit growing area. 
and you have mineral baths. I mean, things that I'd never come across in my entire life. Yeah, you yeah. Lights, uh, the Mineral Bader in Stuttgart. Does it have um, baths like um, like Baden-Baden is famous as a kind of spa town? Yeah, is it, exactly. Is it, yeah. But we, yeah. there's a bit of that in Stuttgart as well. Yeah. So, um, and then I, I moved from the city. I mean, I was living in the city centre in Stuttgart, so that was much busier than the suburbs of Dublin where I'd grown up. But you could you could walk everywhere. You had a tram. You had the U-Bahn, the S-Bahn, all of these things that we didn't have in Ireland. Um, and then you had a very good train system, so you could travel to all sorts of places. And I very quickly started traveling to Bremen in the north because I started taking historical harp lessons with uh, different European historical harps. And so there was an amazing teacher, um, Andrew Lawrence King, who'd come from. He traveled from. Guernsey, where he lived, to uh, Bremen, to the, the Académie d'Alte Musique. So I used to go up and down to Bremen for lessons and travel all around the place. I presume bringing a harp from Stuttgart to Bremen wasn't exactly straightforward. Uh, no, I, none of my travel life has ever been straightforward for the last 30 years. Um, I think I, I had to learn to drive in Germany because I didn't have a driver's license. And that was quite a thing because getting a driver's license in Germany is serious business. You know, you had to do so many hours on on normal roads, country roads, the autobahn, you had to sit the test. It was it was serious and it took it took a while to do it. So then I got my first sort of beaten up car and then I would I would drive the whatever it was, 800 kilometres up to Bremen and back with harping car. When it comes to harp, then, I suppose, um, tell us uh, about the historical harp. Why is a harp historical? What What is it? Well, there are loads of different kinds of historical harps. I think when we say historical harps, we just mean harps from earlier centuries. And of course, there are many, many different kinds of harps in different countries and different centuries all around Europe and, and the wider world. Um, I had started off playing what I called the Irish harp, which now I would call the modern Irish harp. So it's the one with, uh, in my day, it had gut strings and now they have nylon strings and semitone levers to change the pitch of each string. And that's an instrument that was invented um, first in the early 19th century, but really took off at, at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And when I got to Stuttgart, I heard a very interesting concert. At, there was an early music festival. I was always interested in Renaissance and Baroque music, but um, when I was at college, I would have been singing it trying to play sort of handle on my Irish harp, but my I'd be turning these semitone levers up and down like, you know, like wildfire. So um, when I went to Stuttgart, I, I remember going to the, uh, there was an early music festival, historical music festival there. And um, I met Andrew Lawrence King, who later became my teacher. And he was playing these European historic harps, these big harps with two and three rows of strings. So he had the kind of instrument that you could play Renaissance and Baroque music on, the music that I loved, and then suddenly I saw, oh, this is the instrument you play it on. So a light, it was a light bulb moment. And I remember saying, you know, saying hello to him. And he said, oh, you should come to Bremen and we should give courses together on medieval Irish music and medieval European music. So, so that was my introduction to all these European harps. Because when Bach and when these people were writing music, that's what they were writing it for, these very old instruments. Yeah, not, yeah. Uh, so um, maybe Bach a little bit less so because I'm not, Sure, there was so much harp playing going on in Germany um, in his time. There was some, but um, I loved, I also loved Italian Renaissance music and Monteverdi, the man who sort of almost invented opera um, and all of that sort of early 17th century Italian music that I adored. Suddenly here with the harps that you played on an arpa tripla or an arpa doppia, these harps that had, they had enough strings to give you what you have in terms of white and black keys on a piano. You have all the notes you need to play the music. We're going to play a little piece 
here. This is uh, the whip of Dumboyne and uh, to get a sense of it. So can you tell the listener what to listen out for um, on this piece before we... Sure. So um, once I'd started playing Spanish Baroque harp and Italian Baroque harp, it was, took me a few years to realise that we have our own historical harps in Ireland. And it, it, I suppose that's the thing that's, that's really energised me for the last few decades is trying to get us to play our own historical harp in Ireland. So we're all very familiar with what it looks like if you look at your coin or your passport or a glass of a very well-known brand of beer, you'll see a harp on it. And that's not a fantasy harp. That's a real instrument that's in Trinity College in Dublin. That's sometimes called the Brian Baru harp. And so that's the kind of harp that you're going to hear on the recording. It's um, an early Irish harp, the kind of thing that we played for over 800 years, and then it died out in around 1800. And so it was the aristocratic musical instrument of the of the the Gaelic uh, the Gaelic aristocracy. And it's got the special um, characteristic is that it has uh, brass wire strings, these metal strings that were generally played with long nails for most of its history. So um, Trenchmore and the Whip of Dunboyne, these two um, dance tunes that I think we're going to hear are um, some of the earliest Irish dances that have survived, not in Irish collections, but ironically enough in English collections. And I say ironic because, of course, um, you, you know, it's, it's the Tudor English basically wiped out the, the, the culture in Ireland or tried to and ironically then at the same time they brought our harp home and they brought some of the music with them and so it survived in a, an English source so two 16th century uh, dances and they're played here um, on not only the Irish harp the early Irish harp but um, other instruments of the period so one is the Renaissance lute and the other is a bowed instrument called a bass viol
So um, if you close your eyes when you're listening to that piece, do you envisage that uh, you were in Kilkenny Castle with Silk and Thomas as he entertained the butlers of Ormond? Yeah, this is this is exactly where I'm. I, I sort of if I squint, I can almost see the castle from where I live because I live in Kilkenny. And uh, so I'm, I'm really intrigued. And yeah, that's exactly where I am. You see, I, I lived in Carrick on shore for a number of years where um, the 10th Earl of Ormond, Black Tom Butler, Tomás Dove, as he was known, uh, where he had a castle. And of course, he had a castle in Kilkenny. And I can literally see them dancing. You know, we have wonderful descriptions uh, for visit where English visitors would describe them all dancing around the fires and doing these long dances and having maypoles and doing all sorts of things. So I'm, I'm really curious about this meeting of English culture and Irish culture. Like, what do you do when you come back from a long day's marauding and, you know, uh, colonizing? Well, you play your lute and you play your viol. And of course, the, the 10th Earl of Ormond had a harper, George Cruz, a blind harper. So George Cruz probably would have played these things. Yeah, that's a it's a wonderful image. Um, and uh, after blaming the English for almost all sorts of things for 800 years or stealing our language and all that, we now have to add to stealing our harps. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 um, this is the super surprising thing that they're they're trying to they don't understand Gaelic culture because it's a medieval culture and then they're, they're Renaissance tutors. So they think it's very barbaric. They don't they can't get their heads around it at all. Um, but they see that the harp is this exquisite, beautiful thing. And so they start gifting each other um, harps in England. They're building Irish harps in England. And the, you know, the aristocracy and the royalty are absolutely smitten with it to the extent that there are uh, five parkers in a row at the English court from the uh, from the beginning of the 17th century to the middle who all play Irish harp. So when they gifted each other harps, did they actually gift each other harpists as well? Did you need uh, to? I, I think they would gift the instruments. Yeah. Though, I mean, certainly harpists were known to sort of travel for royalty. For example, John Dowland, the famous lute composer in, in Renaissance lute composer in London, he worked for Christian IV of uh, Denmark in Copenhagen for a while. And at one point he was sent back from, Lond uh, from Copenhagen to London to buy lutes, buy, har buy an Irish harp and to employ an Irish harper. And he did. He brought a guy called uh, Charles O'Reilly, Charles O'Reilly, back to Copenhagen with him. So the king ordered his Irish harper and his Irish harp from London okay. and they were duly brought back to him. Um, when you're um, so much part of that world, do you find that uh, you need to almost understand that, that uh, medieval um, world? You need to understand the Gaelic chieftains and how they lived and what was important to them in order to understand the harp? I think that's an integral part of uh, being... I suppose what we'd call historical musicians. I'm not sure I really like that term because I'm not historical. I'm a modern person. Um, I'm just a modern person who's very interested in um, old music and how it sounded. Um, but for me, then a huge part of that is that I want to have copies built of the instruments they played on. I want to look at any you know old manuscripts and evidence the music. Um, I want to figure out the techniques they used. But then a really important part of that is the aesthetic. Like, how did they see life? What was their philosophy? What was important to them? How did they dress? You know, all of these things affect how you would play the music. And I'm, I'm not saying that I wander around in my Tudor outfit, you know, after breakfast and pick up my harp. But I'm, I'm seriously interested in everything in the, their whole world and their worldview. Um, so it's sort of, in, within academia, you call it research-led practice. And, and 
But then the fact that you actually play the instruments, it's like practice led research because the instruments also teach you about what they like done to them and what they don't, what they will allow and don't allow. So there are two sides of a the one coin for me. What wood did they use to make the frame of the harp? So early Irish harps were traditionally there. It's you've got three parts to the triangle. The resonating chamber, the the business end of things, um, is hollowed out of a single tree trunk of willow, of white willow. That's the traditional wood that's used. But we also know that they used other woods. So um, it's not just willow, but that tends to be the traditional wood that's associated with early Irish harps. There's an old Irish, um, probably lots of old Irish fairy tales with harps in them, but there's one and um, the harp is made for the tree and people come and they tell their secrets to the tree to un- unload exactly. it and, and then the harp when the harpist plays the harp the harp sings the song and gives away all the secrets yeah it's terrible there's Lowry O'Lynchick he's yeah, the king with yeah. the don- you know the ass's ears yeah, yeah. and of course he wears the cap and oh. then you know suddenly the harp says but the king has you know ass's ears and he's disgraced yeah. so I yeah. suppose the Lowry Lonshock uh, kind of tales they go back a long way oh I, yeah because the harp should the harp probably goes back it could go back a thousand years. Yeah. We know it goes back about 800 plus or so years because of uh, imagery at the National Museum. There are you know, various mm-hmm. historic treasures that harps are depicted on. So you can tell how more or less how old the instrument is, but it probably goes back further. And when you were saying the strings are brass. They're metal, they're monofilament metal strings, you yeah. know, hard drawn out of a piece of metal. Uh, that must um, have been a huge a piece wire. of engineering in, in medieval Ireland. Yeah, but we, sure, we were fantastic at metalwork. If you if you look at any of the um, Bronze Age treasures in the National Museum, if you go to the National Museum on Kildare Street, when we're allowed to do that sort of thing in the future, of course, um, and you go straight in on the ground floor, it's, it's so doable within 20 minutes. You can just see the most incredible metal treasures. And when you see the intricacy of things like the, the metalwork on the Arda chalice or the tar brooch or the cross of Kong or any of those things, you realise how easy peasy it is to make a harp string. That's just baby stuff compared to yeah. the, the incredible workmanship that they were capable of then that I'm not sure we're capa- we would be capable of now. When it came to the harp, is that the kind of thing that as a child you say, you pick up the harp and say, this is for me? Or um, when did you know that you were going to be a harpist? Hmm. I think um, it was sort of organic. I was sent off to piano lessons. My, my sister, Maura, who's six years older than me, uh, really wanted piano lessons. So when she her wish came true and she got piano lessons when she was about 10, they sent me off as well, my parents. Uh, so I was four years old. And I think the piano teacher twigged reasonably fast that there was some talent, that I had musical talent. So when I was seven, she said, well, her fingers are too small to do any more piano exams. She's just literally not, not old enough. Um, why doesn't she learn a second instrument? And she was suggesting something sensible like the violin. And I like to imagine that I actually remember that conversation and that I was having no truck with the violin because I think I already like to sing. So I said, well, I, I want to I'd rather have a harp so I can sing with it. But where I got these highfalutin ideas of singing to a harp, I don't know. Maybe I'd heard Mary O'Hara, who was the kind of that offshoot of Victorian, that last sort of blossoming of Victorian harping where ladies sat around in long green dresses and strummed their harps and sang. Maybe that was the picture that was in my head. And of course, I've spent the rest of my life trying to get away from that picture. But maybe that's what encouraged me. It was a kind of very important symbol, I suppose, of, of the whole Irish cultural renaissance, the, the, the harp. And um, uh, Mary O'Hara probably was able to fit into that world very easily. 
I'm sure. I mean, the idea of the Irish Colleen with her harp, you know, red hair, green dress harp, these are all tropes that we're very familiar with. And they probably came about again at the sort of end of the 19th century and then in, in the sort of Gaelic revival from the end of the 19th century all the way to 1916. You know, all of those things would have been feeding into Irish nationalism. I suppose she was in the 1950s or 60s. So it's only about 40 years after that, yeah, that you, that you still have that that Victorian idea of, um, and I say Victorian because I think they're playing Victorian instruments. Those modern harps were coming from the 19th century and they were singing, I suppose, uh, Moore's melodies or, you know, other, other songs in English and in Irish, but they weren't singing Irish harp songs like Carolyn songs and, and all of the, the true genre mm. of harp songs that was historical. And would people ever expect you to turn up with red hair and a green silk dress? Oh, sure. Didn't I do it in my time? My sort of my secret or that I never tell people, but I suppose since I'm on Near FM now, the secret <laughs> will be out, is that when I was a teenager, I was one of the harpists in Jury's Irish Cabaret in Dublin. So there I was strumming my harp in my green dress to 600 Americans every night, you know, for, for a whole summer. I had hoped that when I asked um, where the interest in, in, in the harp came from, that you would tell me it was Harpo Marx. Ah, yeah, our beloved Harper Marks. What a genius. What an amazing harpist he was. And you know, you're right. I probably, you're quite right. And I've never considered this before. We were all watching uh, Marx Brothers films when we were younger. So undoubtedly, I would have seen Harper Marks in some of those incredible scenes. Do you know the one where he... um, He's playing the piano and then he deconstructs the piano and it becomes a harp and now he's playing the harp. So they did this incredible, um, you know, nowadays it would be some sort of CGI, but but then it was it was fantastic. Um, so there's an accomplished harpist that, yeah, I'm sure would have on some level been an influence. Yeah, I seem to remember him um, honking that big horn he had and chasing the girls around <laughs> and playing the harp. There was that kind of mix of, uh, <laughs> I wasn't... <laughs> Yeah, very, oh, very strange so approach fabulous. to it. Yeah, they, they were, they were um, so incredible. When you were talking about uh, um, the way the different decades do different things, um, that uh, Hugger Fane on Sauralin, that that piece of music is is that also part of your um, your collection? Uh, it is. It's on the, the the new 16th century CD because we have very um, we have. We don't have very much music that survives that we know predates the year 1600. That was my that was my thinking with trying to make this recording is that for musicological purposes in Ireland, we seem to think everything starts with the year 1600. And you'll have lots of academic articles and stuff about the 17th century, but not about the 16th. And I thought, well, but I'm kind of the person to do that because you you need to have an early Irish harping hat on because we have harp music from before 1600 and you'd need to be interested in the Irish language. But then it's useful if you also know about colonial music. And because I play Renaissance and Baroque European harps, I'm very interested in Dowland and William Byrd and Purcell, Henry Purcell in the 17th century and, and all of these colo- all of this colonial music that the Tudor colonists, the aristocracy would have brought with them uh, to Ireland. So I thought, okay, with both of those hats on, I think I could make a stab here at letting people hear what that's what the two sound worlds were on the island in the 16th century. When it goes so far back, what what kind of records are there available? Um, Where can you go to find out what was I mean, did they write down and said, here's the music for the wedding song from such and such a time and such and such a castle and stuff? How do you how do you know that? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And that, that's the thing that kind of occupies me every day of my life is trying to figure out how we answer that question. And so there, you'd, you'd sort of dance around it in different ways. Irish music didn't start to get written down until the end of the 18th century. And then a lot of it got written down in the 19th century. So um, my Irish source for music would be the field notebooks of Edward Bunting, who was a, a 19-year-old Anglican church organist in Belfast at the uh, end of the 18th century, when he, when he was asked to write down the music of some of the last harpers, because the tradition was almost had almost died out um, at the end of the 18th century. So they, uh, a group of people in Belfast got the last harpers together for a, an assembly of harpers, as they called it, or harpers meeting. And they employed this very clever young organist to write down the music. And by an amazing quirks of fate, one of his field notebooks has survived. And so I can look at um, what he wrote down from elderly harpers who were playing in the 1790s. And that's a really interesting thing, because, of course, like any of us trying to write down music when somebody else is playing it, you'll get some of it right and you'll get some of it wrong. And maybe you won't really understand what they were doing. It's very tricky. So um, I've spent the last five years uh, doing a research degree looking at um, one particular harper, Dennis O'Hampsey, who was very ancient. He was 97 uh, when Bunting first heard him and trying to look at him through Bunting's eyes to see what he was playing. And he was playing maybe late medieval music and 16th and 17th, certainly 17th century music. And so that he's, he'd be one of my sources, but you're looking through several panes of glass to try and get at it. Particularly uh, in, in Belfast, I mean, I presume at that stage the plantations were very well established. Was it a case where the remnants of the O'Neills and the O'Donnells were, were still there, still playing the harp or... Was it that the very strict Dura Presbyterians frowned on music and, and didn't want it at all? How did, how did that fit together? Uh, I think it's, it were well sort of post-colonial, if you like, in that the, the colonial project was very successful in that it took all of the land and, you know, it took everything out of the hands of anybody who wasn't Church of Ireland. So it wasn't just Catholics, but it was dissenters of all kinds. But it tended to be the indigenous Irish who, who came out of the worst, worst end of things. And so that had been going on from the time that Thomas Smith had arrived over from London, uh, an investor who he had invested in. He was investing in the East India Company as they were heading off to India. And he was investing in these new plantations in Ulster. That was in the, you know, the, the later 16th century. So by the time you get to the 18th century, the, it's, it's sort of all done and dusted. 97% of the land is no longer in, in indigenous hands. And so the, the harpers at the end of the 18th century, they're just hanging on by a thread. They're no longer uh, you know, a royal harper to a Gaelic chieftain. They're now um, itinerant harpers and they're moving from one great house to the next. Until the middle of the 18th century, one or two of them hung on. You had uh, Cornelius Lyons managed to, to be the harper to the Earl of Antrim. So he had, a, he had a steady gig, if you like. So he would go over and back to London with his lordship and generally live the life. But most of them, like Arthur O'Neill, I suppose Dennis O'Hampsey to a certain extent, though, he, his steady gig was working for uh, the uh, Archbishop of uh, Bristol, Herbie Bruce. It was this wild character who was uh, his patron up in, in McGilligan in, um, on the North Coast. Uh, this is a man who would write letters to the Pope and Voltaire and all sorts of people. That's a whole other program. Very exciting life. And so he would have been a patron to Dennis O'Hampsey, the old harper. But most of them are just they're just scrabbling around looking for work. So after the defeat at Kinsale and the flight of the Earls, when all the Irish aristocracy 
for want of a better word, they all left. Um, did they bring their harps with them? Did they bring their harpists? Did they did they go? You know the way you'd be walking down a street in Paris or even in the Canary Islands and it's called Avenue MacMahon and you realise that these yeah. great Irish chieftains were everywhere. And a lot of them, of course, joined the, the, the French army and they fought the British at Fontenoy and they joined the Austrians and are everywhere. Were there harps? Did they bring their, that tradition with them? We certainly know of Irish harpers. For example, uh, there was an Irish harper who played for Louis XIV. I'm trying to think of his name, Mr. Uh, David Murphy. He had played for Louis XIV and came back so full of himself that nobody, nobody could really stand him. Um, so he was he was a slightly objectionable character in the eyes of the other the other harpers because some of them uh, like Arthur O'Neill left he wrote a, me- a memoir I say right I mean he was blind but he had an amanuensis who wrote down his life story so we we know about the other harpers from uh, largely from him but to my knowledge I don't know of O'Neill and O'Donnell bringing harpers with them uh, I mean O'Neill wound up in Rome and O'Donnell of course uh, wound up poisoned in Madrid. Uh, so he didn't. They didn't last very long. Um, so I don't. I don't actually know who was in their entourage. But to my knowledge, they didn't actually bring harpers with them. But you can imagine, by the time you get to the Battle of Kinsale, things are so bad in Ireland. I mean, you know, the later half of the 16th century, um, the the lower half of Ireland was basically decimated by man-made famine and deliberate military massacres. And the whole idea was that you would clear the population out of it and then, oh, it's empty. So sure, we better do something with it. And then you have plantation. So yeah, it's that terra yeah. nullius argument that the um, that the English also used in Australia, you know, that the Aborigines didn't own the land and therefore it's fair game. So the same thing happened in Ireland. So when you have a situation that's that bad, probably you don't have the, the O'Neills and the O'Donnells, you know, were hanging on by a thread. So probably they weren't in a position to have harpers at that stage. Yeah, I suppose when I think of something like the March of the O'Sullivan Bear from West Cork to Fermanagh, exactly. wherever they went. I was thinking, they, you know, you read my they mind. They didn't exactly carry harps or probably lucky to carry it's bread that, or something. Yeah. yeah, it's that march that would it, you would cry your eyes out when you read about that march. That I mean, the idea that you leave your ancestral lands and you just march where? Into nowhere. And then people are just falling off or dying or whatever's happening. And then at some point, there's nobody left mm. to march. Yeah. It's the it's the worst. It's the wor- one of the worst stories you can imagine from that century. Of, and it's a century is, of pretty bad stories. Is that an old piece of music, or is it the March of the O'Sullivan Bear, or is that a new new piece of music? That one, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Which I think goes into the the British military. I think that's why we know we know that tune. It's a, like an 18th century. Uh, tune in, in England. That's a rather happier tune. That's one of the clan marches. So the O'Sullivans would have had a clan march, like many of the clans. So, and we don't know how old they are. I mean, they, they could be 16th century tunes. There's uh, a lovely one, the March of the King of Leash. They are. Do you know that? The, and exactly. Yeah. Can you hear you know you so much that? about historical Irish music? I'm not. I, I just, I, I can't, yeah, I can't hum it. The, so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you'd have the March of the King of Leash would be another clan march. You have uh, the O'Donovan clan march. There are many clan marches. I think the Chieftains played a lot of those. Maybe I, I got some sure of that music they, at yeah, home. They, I'm yeah. sure they did. Yeah. Uh, but even if you listen to like Hollywood films, there's like the Master and Commander films with Russell, Russell Crowe, where you have all the, you know, the Napoleonic Wars and uh, O'Sullivan's March shows up in those films as well. When you talk about the losing of the harp, music and losing of that world as a, a cultural genocide is that is that a very strong statement to make well it's certainly what i call it i mean what else would you call it 
you know, it's uh, if you and it was a deliberate. Um, we know from the writings of of uh, the Tudor aristocracy that it was a deliberate ploy. You have uh, the poet. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of his name. Was it? Spencer. Spencer. Uh, so Spencer and and company. I mean, he lived. He uh, had a purloined castle, Kilcolman Castle in Cork. So he lived here as a planter until he was eventually burned out and had to go back to London. You had these incredible. Uh, Renaissance minds like Francis Bacon, who's the ultimate Renaissance man. He's a he's a, a musician. He's a scientist. He's an author, and so these are the truly refined men of their day. And Francis Bacon would turn around in his writings and say, "Ah, oh, which it's such a shame we can't have slaves nowadays like the Romans did." You know, it's it, because then you could put these people to good use. So that's what you're dealing with. They they have a completely compartmentalized mindset they're extremely civilized within their own renaissance world but when they deal with anybody that they consider doesn't belong in that world then we're the savages and we should just be we're just firm and to be eliminated and so that makes yeah that makes things quite tricky and so the use of the term cultural genocide i think is absolutely justified because they were they understood that if you could wipe out somebody's culture that kind of destroys that destroys them and it makes them much easier to wipe out. And so they were deliberately trying to wipe out uh, the language and the culture. And we see we see evidence of that nowadays. You know, the fact that we don't speak our own language every day that we speak their language. So it was it was a successful project of uh, cultural genocide. And I, I can't see that any other way. Let me ask you, were the, the way the kind of Gaelic tradition lived on in Scotland for a bit longer until probably Culloden, were there Gaelic chiefs in Scotland that had harps? Is there a Scottish harping tradition? There is, and it's the same tradition. So uh, when I talk about the Irish harp, I could I could as easily um, use the term that my American colleague Anne Heyman um, uses for it. She calls it the Gaelic harp, which is a lovely inclusive term because it includes uh, our Gaelic brothers and sisters in Scotland. So yes, Scottish chieftains, of course, on Dunvegan on the Isle of Skye, the chieftain always had his harper. Uh, so it was as much their culture as, in fact, it's the same culture. There's no difference. We, we think nowadays in terms of uh, nation states, there's Scotland and Ireland, but the Scottish Highlands and you know, Northern Ireland, Donegal, they were, it was the same nation. There was no particular difference. Let me ask you then, when you're playing, is it a very meaningful experience to play in a very old place that actually may have had a harp, one of these old harp played in it hundreds of years back? Oh, absolutely. I've had many, I've been fortunate that I've had many of those experiences. I'm thinking of, uh, I think it was a few years ago, I played a concert for Galway Early Music Festival in a, a castle, a Clare, Clare Galway Castle. I think it was Clare Galway Castle just outside Galway. And you're in a room where you knew, where you know that a chieftain sat and he had his uh, his filler, his poet. He had his rakja, the, the, the performer of the poetry, and he had his harper. Or... Um, there have been other times where I've played, for example, in um, Ormond Castle in Carrick on Shore. Tomás Dolph Butler, the, the 10th Earl of Ormond, he um, built a very fashionable new house onto the side of his, the 15th century castle in the second half of the 16th century. So, And what he built was an Elizabethan uh, manor house. So it's basically the only one of its kind in Ireland. And that's because he was a cousin of Elizabeth I. He adored her. He was always trying to impress her and hoped frantically that she would come up to visit. So you can see her face and all the plaster frieze work on the walls. The, uh, an Elizabethan manor house, of course, on the, the first floor has a super long, maybe a 30 metre long gallery. And that's where you'd, that's where you would socialise and where the family would live. And I remember playing there once. And that was an incredible feeling because 
I suppose I'm so involved in recreating his world and I live in his world because I, I literally live in Carrick and Shore in Kilkenny. I see his manor house or I see his castle almost every day that I'm out. He's also an intriguing character to me because in some ways I shouldn't like him at all because he was a totally loyal courtier. He was totally Anglo. He was, he was the Queen's right-hand man in Ireland. For that, of course, I can't like him because I'm, I'm Irish. Armstrong isn't a particularly Gaelic name though, is it? No, it's not a Gaelic name at all. The Armstrongs moved from, uh, they were reavers, of course. They, they were a cattle rustlers on the borders between England and Scotland for centuries. And I think they were very troublesome, aggressive people. And at one point, James I, when he succeeded to the throne, he was James VI of Scotland, succeeded to the throne in England. And when he became the English king, he sent up English soldiers to sort out the problems on the um, in what were called the debatable lands, because nobody really knew whether they were Scottish or English, because the locals were so savage, nobody could go in to figure it out. Uh, and at that point, lots of them had to were shifted off to Ireland. And I think that might have been the moment that some Armstrongs wound up, wound up in the north of Ireland and then moved to Tipperary, where my father, uh, my father's from um, the horse and jockey just outside Thurlis. And so the Armstrongs moved to this really great land, great farming land in Tipperary. But hilariously enough, I, I always felt, well, I'm, I'm really quite Scottish because of my name. But I did one of these DNA tests a few years ago and I laughed out loud when I got the results because apparently not only am I not particularly sort of half Scottish or, you know, with the red hair, half Viking or whatever you'd expect, or maybe some English in there. The Normans were here, so possibly a bit of French. No, not, not a bit of it. I'm 98% from North Tipperary and, and South Roscommon, which is exactly where my mother and father are from. <laughs> so I found, <clears throat> I found that really, yeah, really amusing. Yeah. There I was assuming I had all this Scottish background and European stuff, not a bit of it. Nobody clearly owned a bicycle in any of those <laughs> villages for a long, long time. And when it comes to festivals and when you have to travel with your harp, which is quite big, obviously getting from Dublin to big cities like Amsterdam or Vienna or something is one thing, but getting high in the Alps to a harp festival is another challenge altogether. There's a wonderful chamber music festival that I've uh, gone to for the last nine or ten years, and it's in a village which is 1,300 metres up in the Swiss Alps, uh, north of Brieg. And that's, yeah, that's that's just no joke because you have to fly to Geneva, you take a large train to Brieg and then you take the small tourist train which goes up into the Alps and you get off at Fiesch. But then what do you do? Well, there's the tiny little local bus that goes up to um, to Ernen, the, the village above. And then it, it's very amusing because the locals kind of know me at this stage. So they're very tolerant. And it helps, of course, if you can speak German. So you go, it's too much by life. And you try and get this enormous sort of, you know, two meter long thing onto the bus. And the, the local women are sort of, you know, getting their heads out of the way in case you kill them. And everybody laughs and off we go to the village. So it's a uh, it's good for stories. I had a notion that the, the Irish medieval harpist was uh, one of the key people uh, in the Chieftain's Castle alongside the Phila and the Shannon singer or something. I presume the harpers then had lots of helpers to help them carry their harp around. Oh, exactly. I was born in the wrong century. I was born by about 400 years in the wrong direction. In the Middle Ages, well, I mean, right back into, I'm sure, into, in much further than that, the harper was the third most important person at the Gaelic court. I mean, who could imagine that a musician would be so important? So the king, the G or king, of course, is the most important person. But the second most important person is also interesting. He's not a judge or a politician. 
he's the poet. The filla is the most important, the second most important person. Um, and then the third is the Ktitara, uh, the harper. So they would have had lands, they had wealth, they didn't have to do anything except their art form. And so they would have done very well for themselves. Even in the 18th century, they would have had helpers. Carolyn, you know, blind harpers would have needed helpers. So Carolyn would have had a helper to help with the harp and the horses. Is there, um, is there a difference between crit and clarshock? Oh, great question. Um, two words for harp. I just It just dawned on me when you said critter because I was thinking clarshock all along. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Kshit seems to be the older word and clarshock seems to be a word that shows up, I think, in about the 13th century or the 1300s. Can't remember which. What's the German word for harp? I should notice. It won't, won't come to me. Eine Harfe. Oh, it's Harfe. Harfe. OK, yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. lost in clarshock. And, and it's interesting, actually, because um, Michel Pretorius, who was the the famous uh, music theoretician of his day in the early 17th century, he brought out two fabulous volumes called Syntagma Musicum. And in it, he gives pictures and describes not only the normal musical instruments of the day that everybody would know, but also the weird and wacky ones that he knew. And he includes on the harp page, he has Die Gemeine Harfe, the usual harp, and he shows a very slender European harp with gut strings. And then on the other side, he has this beautiful depiction of the Irlandische Harpfe. I think he puts a P in it at that stage. Possibly not. I might be, I might be misremembering. But he, in any case, he talks about the Irlandische Harpfe. And then he shows this beautiful image of an early Irish harp because the, the Irish harp had got to Germany by the 17th century. It shows up in inventories in uh, German castles. So he was able to see that instrument and he talks about it. When we put up the podcast, uh, we'll hopefully get lots of recommendations from you of uh, places to go to to uh, to hear the music. And uh, and I suppose, as you were saying, it's not just about hearing the harp, but hearing it alongside other instruments and hearing it alongside uh, voice and, and shannos and stuff. Maybe as we begin to wrap up a little bit, let me uh, take you back to Germany and the seven years that you spent um, near in and near Stuttgart. Is there much that has stayed with you from that time? I think it, it really, it's not too much to say that it actually kind of defined me as a person in lots of different ways. I mentioned earlier on just the, it, sort of half jokingly, but it's true that it defined my approach to, to work and to focus on work. I mentioned German audiences being very focused and also Germans in general that uh, I came into contact with. You know, people are serious and they, they concentrate on their work. And that definitely rubbed off on me. But it also rubbed off on me, I suppose, in lifestyle ways. They trained me up to be an, an environmentalist and to, to uh, think about recycling and eat organic food. And that has definitely stuck with me since. So in that way, it was... It was and have the, have, yeah, the wines, have the wines of the Stuttgart region. I was trying to think, is it, is it Grau, Grau Burgunder? Is that the Stuttgart vine? Y- yeah, you have a, a mm. Feldliner, Grau Burgunder. Yeah. Oh, I'm starting to forget what they all were because you've got lovely reds and whites. That less so. I don't see, I don't see those. I mean, maybe they're on sale in Ireland and I just don't notice them. It might be that you see, I prefer quite heavy red wines. So I'll always veer towards um, not even Burgundy, but towards Bordeaux and Spain, mm. places like that when I'm looking for wine. Do you still eat, eat your Spätzle uh, regularly? Do I still eat my Spätzle? I don't. I'd use my Schwäbisch recipes for red cabbage, you know, braised red cabbage and stuff like that. Um, mm. Though I was amused to see in Lidl in um, Kikkenny last week, they had Schwäbische Spätzle. On sale, so I actually had to take a picture and send to my Schwäbisch best friend to give her a laugh 
and she found that highly amusing. That because uh, we would make we would have made spätzle together in her house, you know, when I visited years ago. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether I find that really lovely or whether it's slightly disappointing that things that were once upon time uh, incredibly exotic are now available uh, in in the supermarket. Uh, oh, I suppose it, it, it's, it depends on your viewpoint. It's good and bad. I mean, yeah. we like to we'd like a world maybe that isn't so. Um, doesn't have so much homogeneity. Like you go down any um, capital, any any street in a capital city, mm. and it's all the same shops, which is a terrible shame. But on the other hand, when we want to eat Asian food, we're grateful that yeah. in, in Kilkenny we have fabulous shops where we can buy, you know, Indian and Asian food, and I'm grateful for that. So I, I don't know where mm. I'd stand on that. And, and the spas that you mentioned uh, in Stuttgart as well—that's something we almost simply don't have at all in Ireland. I mean, they're quite an unusual experience, aren't they? That's a real shame. Wouldn't it be great if we had a, a Leutze here? Leutze was the, the Mineralbad in Stuttgart and it was so amazing to me. Just along by the river, just along by the Necker. Is that yeah, where exactly. the Leutze is? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it's along by the Necker. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. And you'd go there and you'd have all the different temperatures and fizziness and yeah. what's sauna. The, what's, and this the, um, and the other. what's the chemical that's in the water? What, what makes it do that? Uh, oh, they just have all sorts of, um, all sorts of minerals. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very so sharp, isn't it? It's surprisingly... It's surprisingly... I don't know what the word is. It, it kind of, when you get into the bath, it's not really relaxing. It really bites into your skin, doesn't it? It's, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, you drink, you know, at, uh, you drink, you're supposed to drink the water as well, but it's so full of minerals, I could never drink it. Yeah. And even the, even the, um, the, the mineral water that you would drink in Germany, that was a real surprise for me when I got there, where things like pumpernickel bread, like really heavy bread and sprudel that was really super fizzy. Like I couldn't really cope with that very well when I got there. But on the other hand, they had great cooking. You know, they, they knew what to do with vegetables. I, I'd come from boiled vegetable culture. And then suddenly you went to places where you realize, oh, this is, you know, this is how you can cook vegetables. And of course, the Germans have all sorts of influences from the Italians and from Greek and from Turkish cooking. So that was a real eye opener to me as well, that the food was, I found the food very interesting when I went there. Yeah, we, probably 1980s, uh, Dublin was very much a white bread and carrots and turnips or something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I was lucky that my mother baked, you know, she was a good cook and she baked brown bread and, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. So I was coming from sort of good, wholesome cooking, but it was of the Irish bland variety. You know, we didn't really use herbs and spices mm. and the Germans certainly did at that stage. So, um, yeah, I learned a lot from my time in Germany professionally, personally and developed me and have stayed with me for all my life, I, I'd have to say. We'll go out on uh, All Main, Mr. Cormac, and uh, I'll give you a chance then. Do you want to plug your CD and tell people uh, where you can get it and tell us a bit about the piece of music? Oh, well, I'd rather plug Mr. Cormac first because okay. he's amazing. He's, yeah. the, he's the first Irishman who composes music in a European style. So he's not just a traditional harper, but he, he's employed by Elizabeth I, I think about the year she died. And so he went on to work for James I. So there we have an Irishman. At the same time, you'd think this is, you know, it's at the same time that we have all the colonial project going on in Ireland. But there's an Irish harper at the English court who's absolutely loved and respected and composing and uh, composing in European style. So this is a, a, a dance that he would have composed, um, an Almain, a court, a European court dance. And uh, it's from the CD is called uh, Music Ireland of the 16th Century. And it's being launched on the 7th of March. So if anybody wants a copy, they can get it from my website, which is just SiobhanArmstrong.com. So, uh, vielen Dank. And it was uh, really lovely to talk to you. Gerne geschehen, Kieran. It was really lovely to, to talk to you too. Macht viel Spaß. Danke. Okay. Tschüss.
Cheers.